Today's guest was an executive at one of New Hampshire's most successful startups, Dine in Manchester, which eventually sold to Oracle. Since then, he has started his own firm to help other startups succeed, and along with his brother, is helping to transform Manchester's city center with a new entertainment and hospitality complex. I'm Matt Nari, co-publisher and executive editor of Business NH Magazine and Granite Media Group. And I'm Christine Kerrigan, co-publisher of Business NH Magazine and chief creative officer for Granite Media Group. And welcome to BizCast NH. So, Christine. Yes. I'm so glad we have today's guest because we can probably pick his brain uh, uh, later because, you know, while Business New Hampshire Magazine is celebrating its 40th anniversary, can you believe it? Isn't that great? That's amazing. I feel like we're a startup because you and I bought this business just over a year ago. Yes. And we are discovering I have so much more sympathy for my readers than I've ever had in my life because I now know what they have gone through. Yes. (laughs) Yes, we're now seeing the entrepreneurial journey from the other side as entrepreneurs ourselves, and it's quite something. So year one, what were some of the things that surprised you about being a business owner? (laughs) What didn't surprise me about being a business owner (laughs) I think the question. Um, So much. I mean, being in a business for, I was with the company for, I want to say 16 years before we purchased it. And you think you know what it takes to run the company. And then once you actually take on those reins, it's just, it's something new every day. And you just, you don't know what's going to come down the line. And I think, and you and I have talked in the past, or actually just recently about how, you know, even though you feel like you're checking things off your list, you don't feel like you've gotten anything done because there's just more and more and more being added to the list. The list doubles (laughs) as soon as you get through one column of it, you're like, yes, oh no. <laughs> right. And it, it's the the challenges that come up with it. I mean, like you said, we've I've been with the company for 22 years, but when you are then in charge of everything, um, you know, it's amazing, even just the bureaucratic stuff you have to deal with. Like we had an employee move over the border into Maine. Yes. And you would think like, oh, that's not a big deal, except, you know, we are a primarily work from home company now. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're remote. And so trying to deal with the state of Maine to figure out what we need to register as with them. I mean, we were three years past the pandemic. Like this should be old hat by now. And the fact that we called the state of Maine and their response to us was, you need to read the RSA. No, That's why I'm calling you. I'm not a lawyer. I just need to know, what do you need from me? It was amazing to me just how much time and effort you have to spend on things that you think would just be easy. And right. I think that's been our mantra, like nothing is easy. <laughs> I think so. You're definitely right. You're definitely right on that one. So I have learned, I think one of the lessons I've learned as well is I have to be very cognizant of my time. I have to be very strict with my schedule um, because there's so much to do. I really have to make sure I'm planning out my day properly so I can get to everything. Um, You know, I want to get to whatever the employees need from me. I want to make sure I have time to get them what they need to get their jobs done and I also need to find time to get my job 
done as well on top of all of that. So I really have to be very strict with my schedule and make sure um, that I stick to it as best as I can. That doesn't always happen, but I try my best to make sure I stick to it as best I can. I know. I think people have this, you know, because of popular media, um, you know, have this idea in their head of being the boss is like, you're telling everyone else what to do. It's like, no, as the boss, you have to make sure you're not their impediment. Like my, our job definitely is to remove obstacles so that they can move what they're doing forward. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm one of their obstacles. Absolutely. It's like, I don't want to be that. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a tough line to, to walk, you know, cause right. you want to make sure that you're staying out of the way, but giving them what they need and finding time to get it all done. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite a challenge. And I think um, that can lead us right into our, our guest today, because I'm sure he'll have a lot of insights about entrepreneurship Absolutely. as well. So uh, I'd like to welcome our guest uh, this week is Kyle York, co-founder and CEO and managing partner at York IE, a strategic growth and investment firm for technology companies. He started his career at EdTech Vertical SaaS company Whipple Hill. As CRO of Dyne, he led the company to $100 million in annual recurring revenue and a $600 million acquisition by Oracle, where he was a general manager and vice president of product strategy for the cloud infrastructure business. Today, he works closely with entrepreneurs, operators, and investors to help them build good companies, create new jobs, grow generational wealth, and impact the world. Advising and investing in hundreds of startups, primarily in B2B SaaS, he is a board member for several portfolio companies, including Cyberhaven, Flywheel, Ourwork, Metadata, and Vetro. He is also co-founder of York Real Estate and of the third-generation family business York Athletics Manufacturing within York Creative Collective. Kyle has served as an independent board member for Ascent, Datanize, Flowtrack, and Forcivity. His most successful startup engagement to date, Fastly, IPO'd in 2019, peaking at $13 billion. Wow. He has been featured in The Wall Street Journal, Entrepreneur, New York Times, TechCrunch, USA Today, and Wired, and on broadcasts such as NPR's All Tech Considered, NBC's Today Show, and PBS Frontline. The York Family Foundation and York IE provide nonprofit support and board work to Boston Children's Hospital, New Hampshire Tech Alliance, Stay Work Play New Hampshire, Manchester Historic Association, Manchester Boys and Girls Club, among others. Kyle was named Entrepreneur of the Year in 2021 by the New Hampshire Tech Alliance and serves as chairman of the Entrepreneurship Executive Council. He and his brother, Travis, are the driving forces behind Queen City Center, a new entertainment hub in the middle of Manchester that will be brimming with activity by summer 2024. So welcome to the podcast, Kyle. That's quite a resume. Yeah, and that's you, our I, show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think you guys covered it. <laughs> and we'll wrap it up now. And it was all really easy, guys. It was an easy journey. So I don't think we need to go into I'm it. I'm sure. <laughs> all right. <laughs> So, Kyle, uh, there's so much for us to delve into. And first of all, I have to say congratulations, because among your many accolades, we've just uh, added a few. We were uh, featured, York IE was featured in the November issue as one of the four companies to watch in New Hampshire. And our January issue is just hitting with we're celebrating our 40th anniversary by profiling 40 influencers, of which you're one of them. So we are thrilled to have you here today. Let's delve into this uh, very storied career of yours. And let's start with the family because that seems to be the seat of it. We had your brother Travis on uh, a few episodes ago. What 
what, what was in the family water? I mean, where did all this entrepreneurial spirit come from? What, what has led you to be able to have this career you've had? Yeah, great. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for the recognition. Uh, you've, re- you've recognized me and my companies and colleagues, Dine, Oracle, now in New York, IE, over the last decade, 15 years since I've been back in New Hampshire. And it's very much appreciated the work you guys all do. So thank you. You know, the family business uh, originally uh, back to the roots was actually a footwear manufacturing uh, business. And that was in the R.G. Sullivan Cigar Building in downtown Manchester. At one point in time, as you all know, uh, the mill, the mills in Manchester were manufacturing textiles. Uh, There's a big shoe industry and it was actually called Indian Head Shoe Manufacturing uh, back in the day. And that was actually my mother's uh, father and his uh, family. Uh, there were a bunch of the Danish family, uh, Greek families in Manchester. And they actually operated that business from 1946 until yeah, I think the early 70s. And that's actually when uh, my dad had married into the family. And he was on the first floor of the cigar building as uh, Indian Head Athletic became Indian Head Athletics, which was actually a shoe outlet store to start. And he moved that up the street, which is now Shoppers Pub and Eatery, where we put a bar and grill in. If it's a little plug, if anyone's downtown for an event, check it out. Yep. Uh, yeah. But we yes. actually, that was actually a college roommate out of uh, Bentley who uh, has shoppers in Waltham. And we, in college, over a few beers, told him, hey, when my dad retires, I got let's put a sports bar in the sports <laughs> uh, store. So, you know, nice. we grew up in the family business. You know, there's five York brothers. Travis is the oldest. I'm the middle. And we uh, all grew up, you know, working retail and, you know, sizing ice skates and shoes and baseball gloves and bats and getting people ready for their athletic endeavors. And, you know, also my family um, ran, people don't know this is a separate business. It was called Screen Printed Specialties. And that was actually doing all the uniforms uh, for all the, you know, local little leagues and Pop Warner teams and colleges, universities, high schools, uh, for many, many years too. So I did everything from, you know, screen transferring, you know, hats to screen printing to uh, working retail as a clerk to helping do inventory management. And that's where all all of us learned business, right? And growing up in a family business, what did that instill in you that you, that led you to the success you've had today? Well, I think first and foremost, um, what I always saw is that you know, you have to kind of try to control your own destiny. You know, the the thing that I would always juxtapose was friends whose parents worked in large corporate America. And, you know, from time to time, there'd be a layoff or, you know, a pay cut or a holiday bonus wouldn't hit. And they'd feel like it was completely out of their control. It wasn't like they had could have worked harder or less hard or, you know, um, figured anything out to make it any different. They were just a number in, in a grand machine where what I noticed with my folks was that if they worked harder and were committed and dedicated and consistent that, you know, we'd go on vacation <laughs> or we'd be able to eat out once in a while. Um, and I think in a small family business, if you don't make a profit, you, you, you don't get to reap the rewards of those things where, you know, in startup culture, that isn't exactly how it works. Uh, and in corporate America, that isn't exactly how it works either, right? So for me, it was it was the work ethic um, and the controlling of your own destiny. I think also given it was a small family business, there was an extra layer uh, of community that was very much a focus of my parents. You know, they were always uh, supporting the youth and youth athletics and, and student athletes. 
Uh, I obviously think in, in startups and technology, having that competitive drive from sports, you know, is also super additive. You know, it's some of the most talented people I know are former athletes or competitive um, folks in their in their childhood that really led to it. And those are the types of things that we really that we really learned. I think it was also there was five brothers, so we were also. Uh, you know, a lot of, I always hear like a lot of siblings, you know, grew up with big families and fought. Yep. I think for us, it was more about like, who are we going to fight together? Um, <laughs> than it was necessarily too many. I can remember a few, you know, watch out for the yeah, York boy. Yeah, exactly. I can remember like a few things. There's actually a great story of, um, you know, I was always, I've always been the most aggressive, you know, uh, even as a child in sports and in life. And I remember I was talking smack to some much older kid on the bus, uh, as like a third grader. And, um, he like pushed me or something and Travis actually ran up to the front of the bus. I was in the front of the bus. He was in the back and he, and he knocked the kid out. Oh, wow. Um, and we both got in, in trouble for it. Uh, obviously the got reprimanded by the principal and, it's funny to this day, my dad tells a story about how he was like, not really mad. You know, he was kind of <laughs> like, yes, don't hit anybody. But you know, he loved that my older brother was sticking up for me. Right. right? right. And he came and to the rescue. Exactly. And there's many stories of that. My brother, Evan, who's above me in high school also, you know, coming to bat for me. And usually it was me running my mouth or, you know, <laughs> thinking I was bigger than I was or whatever. But They're like, there goes Kyle again. There he goes. And I, and I actually don't think, I think that's kind of manifested its way into my own career. Right. I mean, I, I sort of go for it and, you know, need a great team and support around me to, you know, cut, cover me up and you know, hopefully not get in fights, but you know, you know, help, help me kind of get to the next level and, and, and be that support infrastructure that everybody needs to be successful. So how did you get interested in the tech field and what drew you there? Yeah, well, for when I went to Bentley, uh, back in the early 2000s, um, Bentley Business School in Boston, um, outside of Boston in Waltham, Mass, they actually gave a laptop to every kid. And that was pretty revolutionary back then. You know, every kid, when you got there, it was part of your, your, your um, uh, tuition, you'd get a laptop. And on the laptop, it was loaded with all the latest software technologies. And they even had a... Um, a trading floor. Uh, it's like was the backup to the stock exchange. If if the stock exchange ever uh, lost power or had some natural disaster, uh, you could go to Bentley and traders could trade. Uh, and wow. so it was really cool. And a lot of people didn't know that. And I, that was a big part of the tour when you were there that they were leading technically. And so. I actually um, interned first after, back at a, a firm in Nashua that was, you might remember, it was called New England Interviewing. It was a market research firm and I loved it, but everything they did for market research, they hosted like focus groups and panels. Mm -hmm. And I remember my job as an intern was, uh, let's say we were doing something for Jell-O. Um, that was one of our clients or Mattel Toys. You'd have to go through the index cards that were all filed. <laughs> <laughs> not digitally. Uh, and you'd have to like call all these housewives and be like, Hey, your kids, you got kids between the ages of 10 and 14 who want to taste chocolate jello. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, we're putting this weekend. <laughs> and literally I remember thinking to myself, wow, this should be technology even, even then, yep. right. On 2000 or whatever that was 2001. And so the next summer I said, man, it would be really great to find a, a tech company. Uh, I'd love to learn more about software. And I was fortunate enough to find Whipple Hill, which was actually in Bedford, New Hampshire. They ended up scaling and selling to a company called Blackbot right. out of South Carolina. I remember Whipple Hill when it was here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they they did um, uh, private school software. So if any listeners, uh, kids went to prep schools or private school schools or worked at schools or alums of schools, um, they were the leading provider of private school software uh, nationally. And I actually moved to California for them too. That's a part of my story that a lot of people don't realize that I, I did leave and, and and made my way back <laughs> to the Granite State. Uh, but yeah, that that was a really great drive. And I actually interned there and stayed over six years uh, through my entry level jobs, moved to California 
it's the best thing that ever happened to me. And I actually remind, uh, and you, you'll appreciate this, but I remind a lot of undergrads this today, like, hey, where are you intern and where, you, what industry you might take your first job in or might be where you stay. So like try to choose wisely even mm. early on. And I do find that a lot of people I find that are really, really successful or, or accelerate success younger in their careers, it's because they were pretty consistent about the the industry they stayed in or the expertise they garnered. They really use it as a stepping stone to, to learn and evolve in that space. And that was a big thing for me. So what drew you back to New Hampshire? Well, so I moved to, I moved to San Diego, which, uh, you know, it's tough when you go there to come back. To be I honest. was going to say, it's gorgeous there. I mean, the weather, the city. And I think my parents were, my mom didn't talk to me for six months when I moved. She denies it now, but like, that, that's true. Uh, she was so mad. And, and again, I think part of it was, you know, you go to California and, you know, I didn't go straight to Silicon Valley, but I went to chase the technology, you know, Mecca a bit. And, um, you know, I think there's also the fear of the beaches and the palm trees that maybe you don't leave San Diego. For me, I knew that it was a transient move and that I was going to go make a name for myself and probably eventually make my way back to the Northeast, to New England. I didn't know if I'd necessarily come right back to New Hampshire, but uh, I actually got a phone call from Jeremy Hitchcock, co-founder and CEO of Dine, and he actually was a high school classmate of mine at West, uh, Manchester West, and didn't know him that well uh, growing up, but knew of Dine a bit. I'd heard a little bit of what was going on. Uh, my brother Travis actually had done some marketing strategy, brand strategy for them. And he just called and said, hey, we're looking for sort of the founder we never had, the co-founder we never had. We didn't have a business kind of sales marketing uh, expert on the team. We're mostly engineers, technologists. Uh, maybe you can help us. Uh, so I, I came back and... Uh, yeah. I mean, they're kind of the rest is history. I met with Jeremy uh, first at Cotton Restaurant in Manchester. Uh, we sat at the bar. I remember on a cocktail napkin, I should have saved it. I mean, this big, he asked for a pen and he and he drew how the internet works and how the domain name system, the DNS, oh, wow. which is Dine's specialty, uh, how, how it actually worked. And I remember thinking to myself that day, like, man, this guy knows more about the internet and how it works than anyone I've ever met but also really needs my help because translating that into business value uh, is going to be very challenging because it's so technical. Uh, and I think I could do a good job at that. So that's what brought me back. I, uh, Katie and I were getting married in Boston. Uh, and so it was, it was an interesting thing because she was like, what, you want to move back to New Hampshire? Like, what do they do? I never heard of it. I, I don't know if that's a good job to take, but I said, Hey, we're getting married. We're planning the wedding. Maybe it'd be easier if we move back and take the job. And we kind of do all this change at once. And uh, whew, I'm glad I did. And it both have worked out, by the way. Three kids now, very happy marriage, uh, you know, and also the career, as you heard about in the bio, um, <laughs> is, uh, has been pretty, pretty um, fulfilling. I would say so. I would say so. Um, so can you give us a little bit more insight about what your role was at Dine and what you did to help grow that to that $100 million and then eventually the um, the acquisition by Oracle? Yeah, so I ran all the, um, I say, outside-facing functions of the business, you know, all the sales, marketing, business development, uh, client success, all that rolled into me. Uh, so I was the chief revenue officer for the majority of that time period. Uh, that was sort of a new title uh, back then. It's a big title now in software and SaaS. Uh, but back then, I remember everyone thought I just kind of made it up. Um, <laughs> you know, which maybe, maybe we sort of did. But the reality is, in a software business, it's a subscription business model. So, you know whether it's a new client, an expansion of an existing client, the retention of an account, uh, 
the end-to-end, you know, kind of revenue life cycle of a customer uh, needs to be, you know, the buck's going to stop with somebody. And you guys are feeling that now as entrepreneurs, right? Like the end of the day, who's accountable to the success success and failure of the business? Well, whoever controls the revenue, right? Um, And that's just the way business goes. Uh, So that was my role. Uh, And, you know, obviously we scaled to about 500 global employees. Um, all the international teams were sales and marketing teams, so they all rolled into me. Uh, and it was a it was a heck of a run. Uh, it was also, yeah, I don't I didn't say this then. I used to pretend I was a lot older during this run uh, to show that I had experience. Um, but that was from 26 to 33. You know, was that experience? So kind of learning on the job. And, and it was a fairly young leadership team totally. that was on this. And, you know, I, I had this kind of maybe second row seat uh, to, you know, we, we, we were covering Dine from its very early origins. It was part of our best companies to work for and this very cool vibe that it had and watching it just explode into this major player um, and became kind of like the, the siren call of New Hampshire, right? It was the company everyone wanted to work for. It was held up as the gold standard of what a startup in New Hampshire could achieve. What for, I mean, it's, it had no reason to succeed to the degree it did, you know, being in New Hampshire, obviously really smart people running it, but yeah, fairly young, you know, yeah. uh, to be able to grow it to the extent that you all did. It was amazing. What was the secret sauce to that? And what was it that everyone brought that yeah. was able to, to achieve what it did? Well, to unpack that, uh, one thing Gray China with, who was our COO, used to say a lot is every year he'd be like, oh, our average age went up a year. And I'd be like, well, that's because we're all a year older. <laughs> you know, like, you know, it, wasn't, it wasn't necessarily that we were hiring all this right. experience around us. It's just uh, how time works. just kind of how time works. Uh, we used to chuckle about that every single year. Uh, but yeah, it was a very young team, but it was also a very inspired and aligned team who all very much cared about uh, succeeding here where we were. And each of us, I think, had a different story of how people told us we couldn't be successful in technology back in New Hampshire, right? right. I mean, I certainly, I was told that straight to my face by some very prominent uh, West Coasters saying, you're never going to be successful in technology, not based in Silicon Valley. Uh, and I'm proud to say I have been. Um, and I'd like to two-finger salute them sometimes, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think everybody, every one of us, ended up with a little bit of that chip on our shoulder to prove that we could. And I think when you when you have that rallying cry and everyone sort of buys into that, uh, that you can achieve amazing things. The second thing, and this is more personal for me, was... I was selling prep school software, and at the time back then when I took the job at Dine, there was like 4,200 private schools in the world, right? And one of the challenges I had is that my pitch was my pitch was my pitch, and I was sort of just saying it over and over and over again for six, seven years. And But that was the market. That was the market opportunity entirely, right? And so the thing that excited me about Dine is, and I remember saying this specifically to, to Tom Daly, he was Dine's CTO as well, was, so you're trying to tell me this technology can be bought by anyone with a website? And he's like, yes, anyone with a website. I'm like, I'm in. Because all of a sudden now the total addressable market, the market opportunity for Dine was anyone with a website on the internet. Right. And obviously we're going to focus on larger websites to have larger paying clients. But that became a huge, huge realization that the most important websites in the world could rely on us. And why not us? Why, why wouldn't they leverage us all from New Hampshire? So I think it was a, it was a, it was a lot of things that came together. Um, it was a culmination of ambition and 
aspiration and sort of inspired team rallying. It was the technology was the best in the world at a very specific thing. It really rode the cloud computing uh, revolution and the subscription SaaS business model uh, revolution. And we we really grew with our our clients. You know, the as the web grew, we grew, and it was a it was a huge huge uh, catalyst. I think for the for the state's economy, uh, certainly for even like downtown. When I think of like downtown Manchester's foodie scene, bar scene, uh, all the residential development that's going on. I think a lot of that was made possible by the early showings of the Dines, the single digits, the new formas, uh, several great companies that had a lot of success along along the ride. But yeah, I mean, it really was a incredible, incredible journey. I mean, I, mi- I miss it. I mean, I think all of us do. I, I at least once a week hear from somebody. I work with a lot of dying people still, of course, but um, I, I hear from you know randoms, random colleagues all the time sending me random ca- campaign marketing campaign T-shirt pictures or. <laughs> Uh, someone was just asking me if I have any photos of South by Southwest venue where we used to host a big party down yep. there. Uh, but yeah, it was an unbelievable, unbelievable journey. We'll be right back. Do you wish you had a crystal ball to see what 2024 has in store for your industry? Join Business NH Magazine and leaders from 11 industry sectors at New Hampshire Futurecast 2024 to hear what the new year has in store. Join us on January 25th at the Dairy Field in Manchester. Find out more at businessnhmagazine.com slash events. And we're back. So Kyle, you know, we're talking about Diane and I want to move on from Diane in just a few minutes, but uh, I do want to talk about the fact that it has had this legacy effect here in New Hampshire. I mean, it was an amazing business story unto itself, but the fact that so many talented people were in that leadership team that have remained in New Hampshire and from their time at Dine and beyond have really been dedicated to growing the New Hampshire tech ecosystem and making sure the supports are there to instill that startups can come here and New Hampshire is seen as a place where tech is important and can succeed. Can you talk about your path, you know, after this huge payday that you all rightfully landed is selling for $600 million to the company. Um, Can you talk about that legacy that has continued because of the leadership um, folks at Dine, including yourself? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, for me, I, I certainly wanted to do something captive again, right? And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is, you know, Dine was this really independent story for a long time. You know, we didn't have outside investors. Right. We did it our way. We scaled pretty big. In the end, we raised $100 million. And I think sometimes you can look back at history and say, well, they raised $100 million. But we didn't do that until the company was 11 years old and until four plus years after I even got there. Mm-hmm. Um, we were already doing $30 million of re- revenue by the time we raised money. That's very unheard of in startup world, by right. the way. Like, you know, companies every single day, I mean, we get over 10,000 pitches a year to York IE now who invests in early stage companies. I have an idea. I'm raising $2 million, right? And it's like, whoa, 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 time out. Let's slow it down. Do you need to raise $2 million? Let's figure it out, right? So the culture is you just raise money, you have overlords, you have um, a company that has partners that are financial partners, and that's the way it kind of goes, right? I wanted to create something in York IE that could be more of an evergreen sort of forever company, right? So what York IE is, is it's a um, strategic growth and advisory firm, an investments firm. So we have an advisory as a service business that provides uh, sales support, marketing support, finance support, development support for 
other companies. And then we also have an investment uh, fund that invests in early stage, seed stage, uh, B2B software businesses. So think like, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars of revenue to a couple million. That's the stage we're at. They're calling us and saying, we need to raise growth capital. Can you guys help us? And I wanted to create York IE as my sort of forever company, the, the company that was a portfolio approach to companies that would enable me to hopefully build lots of dines, right? Mm -hmm. And certainly in New Hampshire, but everywhere, right? I right. mean, especially post-COVID, I mean, the world's gotten a little bit flatter. People are working more remotely. Uh, so we could really make a dent, a dent and an impact on the startup sector uh, here and have that be our evergreen sort of forever company. Because, I mean, the, the unfortunate reality of a company that exits to an Oracle is it's then Oracle's. Right. Right. And your baby gets put in the hands of someone else with a totally different strategy and, and, and plan for you and your organization. And by the way, we have tons of former diners who are still at Oracle having very successful careers there. It's just, you know, the whole of dine sort of over time fades, right? Because it's now Oracle and Oracle is a totally different business. Uh, so, you know, I wanted to create something that could, could stand the test of time, that could stay independent, that we could control. And, you know, I mentioned it earlier about small family business, right? Control your own destiny. Well, it's tough to control your own destiny when you have uh, different players with different timelines and different financial motives and different strategies for you. Right. So I wanted to ask, um, going back, as you said, in addition to uh, being an investment company, you have that advisory aspect. Um, so are there things that you're seeing uh, from startups that are kind of the biggest mistakes that you see quite a bit that could maybe be some advice to our listeners about what what you're seeing and what maybe to avoid as a startup company? Yeah, I mean, I think the number one mantra we, we kind of pitch to startups is pragmatic growth. Uh, if you follow technology startups, actually go even all the way to public uh, company, public technology companies, and you study their um, IPOs or you study their uh, financials, you'll notice they burn money. And what I mean by that is every single month, they bring in less revenue than they spend. Mm -hmm. And they use the public markets as, as funding to continue to sustain that over time. Well, that goes all the way back to the start of a company. You know, if you raise a bunch of money and you burn a bunch of money before you turn profit, that can be a slippery slope where that mm. just persists, even in success, all the way to the end. I mean, you just saw WeWork uh, this past week go right. under. And I mean, that, that company raised billions of dollars, yeah. but still failed, right? In the end, because they didn't have a healthy, pragmatic business model. So whether it's Main Street small business, whether it's a fast growth technology startup, whether it's a service professional services business or a media company, or I was like, well, do you have a good sustainable, pragmatic business model. Or are it, they going to make a mini series about you? Completely. Yeah. It's like, it's, <laughs> seriously. I mean, it's, it's kind of an unbelievable, it was entertaining. <laughs> very entertaining. Um, people make money and get rich. Uh, I, I, even Adam Newman from WeWork, the founding CEO, I think he personally made 2 billion, but think of everyone that loses in that game. And so someone eventually inevitably always loses in those growth at all costs, um, operate with a high burn, no profitability model. Someone eventually loses in the end. And the problem is what's happening in these companies that go all the way to public is it's actually retail public investors who use, it could be us who just buy some public stock because it, it got covered in Time Magazine or something, right? And and so someone eventually always loses. So so I bring it all the way back to the beginning. And, and, and honestly, that probably just comes from growing up in a small family business where if you don't make a profit, you don't go out to dinner and you don't go on vacation. And it's very basic, right? But I think we've lost a lot of that, especially in startup land, uh, just because 
it is all about grow, 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 grow at all costs. So what did you see in the marketplace that you looked at and said, there's a need there that I can fill? Like, why did you feel York IE was not only your forever company, but would be a sustainable company that was needed? Because I was doing it moonlighting, um, yeah. you know, over the many years of building up Dyne, uh, because we were an infrastructure to help scale the backend systems of these websites, a lot of times clients would then come to me and say, how are you building a brand or driving community or doing demand generation or doing pricing and packaging or building a sales team and building commission plans and all that? And so as that started to happen, I started to get asked to do board roles or angel investing companies. And you know, so did Jeremy, so did Gray, so mm -hmm. did Corey, uh, so did a lot of different uh, leadership of Dine started to just, you know, put little investments in, in startups. And uh, that's actually where um, in the bio, you mentioned Fastly, who ended up going public and peaking at um, $13 billion through COVID because they do um, digital content delivery behind websites. And during COVID, we were all online, right? you know, and Zoom was their client and they were the digital infrastructure behind that. So like, it just, it just, there was a lot of companies that got the COVID bump big time. Yeah. Uh, and that's what happened. And that's what actually ended up happening to Fastly. Uh, so, you know, I think it's, it's, those are the things that, you know, kind of make these, these tales all kind of happen, but I was doing it right. And so also on the operating side, so that's as an investor advisor on the operating side, I, I just felt like the places that we needed to go as young entrepreneurs, first time, you know, Jeremy, Tom, first time founders to get help and support were sort of failing us. Right. Or, or super expensive or mm -hmm. inaccessible or siloed or indifferent to the inevitable outcomes of our business cared more about what it meant to their business. And so I wanted to align incentives a little bit more and create a firm that was accessible, was integrated, uh, was collaborative. And was that kind of warm blanket, one-stop shop resource hub for startups to help them with the things that traditional firms and companies uh, can't, can't solve for them. You, if you're a startup, you're not calling McKinsey for help, right? I mean, it's just not going to happen. Right. Right. And your VCs, uh, your private equity firms, your growth equity investors, um, they all say they're value add and they're all super helpful. The business model they have doesn't support that, right? They don't have a lot of infrastructure or resources or people to do any work for them. You know, their clients, actually their investors that are paying their fees, right? So, so that's a big difference. What's the York IE model that makes that different? So we uh, have kind of inverted the way it traditionally works. So t traditionally you have a venture capital firm or a private equity firm, and then they have some services. If, if they have services, they'll have services just for their investments. The way the York IE model works is it inverts that. We have our advisory as a service business, and that's what's scaling, and that's what you're recognizing us for from that business perspective. And that business can sell any company that's an investment or not, right? So any company from idea stage to you know pre-IPO, so we say t private technology companies who want help with strategic growth can call us and they can procure a service or cap capability through York IE. Um, and we have an investment arm to invest in our favorites at the seed stage, right? And that's, again, it's just a little bit inverted. Uh, think of it almost like a Bain, a Bain Capital, you know, founded in 83. I think Bain Consulting was 80 or 76 or something like that. You know, we're trying to do something that's sort of like, what would you do today if you launched that with, with software, data, automation, uh, globalization all occurring for startups? Well, you would integrate it. You would tech enable it. You'd use lots of AI and automation. Uh, and you'd integrate a lot of different things that were never integrated before. We were talking about the, the COVID bump that tech companies that were in the right space at the right time, you know, really felt the, the positive, if you want to say it that way, impact on their companies, you know, in, in, in order. 
But um, can you talk about what it meant for your company? You started a year before COVID. I mean, as a, a, a startup yourself, um, what was what was it like trying to, at that point that the company was at, to, to move forward when this huge unknown hit? Yeah, I mean, I think all startups are hard. Uh, I think, thankfully, we had the experience of dying to know that startups are hard. And, you know, it's gl- they're very glamorized, but they're actually it kind of suck to work at, to be honest. And they're, they're really, really, really hard to lead. Uh, and especially, and that, that's true of good times. Yeah. Right. Like, like macro good times. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, cause there's always micro problems. Like there's always stuff that goes wrong. There's the employee who doesn't show up. There's the, you know, payroll that didn't get paid. There's the invoices that are stacking up on your, on your AP. Right. There's a client who doesn't pay you and the, AR, right. There's always something going on. Right. And, and you, you alluded to that in the, in the intro, uh, when the macro goes, all headwinds. Uh, that's when you know it really, really tests the resolve of entrepreneurs and founders. Uh, it was incredibly difficult for us because we we just had started the firm. Right. Uh, we we've powered through. I think the fact that we've had the growth we've had through it all uh, in the worst of times, honestly, for startups, like startup funding has slowed big time. Uh, there's been more startup deaths in the last year than there had been in several years before combined. Um, again, it, it's a trickle down effect from public tech stock, public market economy performance, uh, public tech stock, IPOs, late stage funding, all the way to when we operate. And it's just a very, 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 very difficult time for startups Particularly in New Hampshire, I was there was a recent ranking that came out that ranked us pretty low for um, startup survival right. rate. I think you know we we were fortunate to have a team and a leadership team that many of us had worked together. Even the um, you know additional team uh, that we that we've added of people who hadn't worked at Diner Oracle, you know, were, were service providers of ours or partners of ours or clients of ours or a couple degrees of separation away. So really close knit group that sort of has battled together. I mean, through through COVID, we also tried to flip it on its head. The the you know take the headwind and what could be a tailwind, and we accelerated um, investment in our India office as an example, where there's uh, incredibly low cost and talented labor. And we now have over 100 employees in Ahmedabad, uh, Gujarat, India. Uh, your, it's literally York. I, there's, you, you'd laugh, Matt. I'll send you pictures after. But like they just had Diwali uh, last week and they're all celebrating. There's all in York IE t-shirts and, you know, praising York IE. And it's just like, it's my last name. You know, it's like, kind of like, it's like crazy. It's, it's in India and there's over 100 employees. So we took advantage of like, hey, maybe this is the time to invest in some areas uh, of the world. We know we'll want to get to eventually. But, you know, maybe now's the time to, to look at that and pass through those costs to startups because they need, they need savings and, and, and quality work um, now more than ever, right? So I think you have to look at like the headwinds you face or, or you know, whether macro or micro and say, okay, what, what's my plan around those things or where can I now invest or accelerate and turn that headwind into a tailwind? And, and that's what we've, we've tried to do through the last couple of years. And um, we're coming to the end of our time soon. I know we're going to be wrapping up soon, but I do want to get into a little bit with uh, the Queen City Center that you and your brother Travis are working on together. And that's going to be, uh, it's planned to be a new entertainment hub in the center of Manchester. Uh, Can you give us a little bit of an idea of what that project is and what you're hoping that it will bring to the city? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so uh, York Real Estate is our real estate arm and we have I think over 110,000 square feet of space throughout Manchester. Uh, and the whole goal of it has always been, um, you know, 
to support our commercial interests, obviously our commercial businesses. You know, we have lots of companies. Why pay someone else rent when we can put our own businesses in the, in the, in the facilities that we own, but also to uplift the community for our employees and for, you know, the, the other companies kind of in the halo. We want, I want, first of all, my people to want to live and work in New Hampshire, right? I also want my kids to want to live and work in New Hampshire someday, right? And we kind of share that, my brother and I. So, you know, we decided um, many years ago, we've owned the cigar building downtown, and we had kind of eyes uh, on this industrial building next door. Uh, Travis and his uh, marketing agency, uh, GYK Antler, have been looking for a production uh, space, a studio, because uh, they do a lot of uh, movie uh, or, or commercials and, and video and photography right. shoots. And had a, and a had space a Western, in Massachusetts. Yeah, and, it was, and yeah. again, it was it was it was really cool space, but not that convenient to their Manchester right. and Boston teams. And so um, we, we went after this space for years and years and years. Every six months, I'd reach out to the owner and offer to buy it, offer to buy it, offer to buy it. And finally, we were able to do it. And we knew that there was a use for um, that that for his Big Brick Productions and GYK Antler, but also knew it was a really cool space that we could uh, bring in some some retail and some entertainment at the downtown Manchester and also like fulfill the... Uh, city's strategic plan of more green space, more connection between Elm Street and the Milliard, uh, and also turn it more into like a campus. So we actually even got the city to um, uh, c- kind of uh, concede the roadway between our two buildings because we were the abutter. Um, and that's actually like our road. Like we own the road now. Uh, both buildings own the road. And that's going to be all integrated into the outdoor space, uh, the seating for Harpoon Breweries coming. Uh, so it's going to be just an unbelievable kind of campus environment uh, around the commercial space we already own, plus this uh, retail entertainment center. And to give our listeners kind of a scope of this project, I mean, this is not a little project. How big is this? Is like 80,000 well, square no, feet? Well, no, I think, the, well, I mean, combined, the two buildings are 80,000 square feet square feet and we're, and we're fully, fully occupied in the RG Sullivan yeah. cigar building. Right. Uh, we're on the top floor and my brother's on the, uh, Travis yep. on the bottom two floors. Uh, the, the new building I believe is 33 or 35,000 square feet. But then w- when you take into account like Harpoon's doing an outdoor deck, uh, there's going to be outdoor space. Bar life's going to be in there. Union coffee. Uh, they're going to have outdoor seating and Ashley's going to be doing outdoor, uh, you know, yoga, Pilates, different things. Um, so, when you take all into that in account, it's, it's a pretty large scale project. It's, it's, it's not cheap, um, but it's a, a very long game investment. That's how we look at all the real estate stuff we do locally. And it was basically curated, right? You know, it's not like you took over the space and lo- looked for a bunch of chains to throw in there. Can you talk about what you, you, you considered for this space? Yeah, we certainly, uh, we believe downtown Manchester needs more retail and more entertainment. Uh, so that was a big deal. Uh, not just, you know, bars and restaurants. I mean, the, the downtown is a tremendous foodie scene now and bar scene, but we needed to add some more kind of entertainment to it. So it was going to always be anchored by a brewery, hopefully a coffee shop, you know, and kind of everything kind of came around that. But all of it was outreach to uh, the business owners of those companies asking if they'd have interest, right? And and it wasn't like we waited for any inbound. I think in the announcement, uh, Travis like left 10% in there unoccupied to yes. see what we'd hear from. And actually, I've heard from some really cool stuff unannounced uh, that we're really excited about. But yeah, it's going to be a great, uh, I'm hopeful your timeline you mentioned earlier is the timeline. Um, as you know, these things, 
even when it was announced, I laughed because we've been working on it for like six, seven years. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, yeah, okay. Everyone's like, congratulations. I'm like, on oh, what? They're like, oh, yes, it is out now. You know, we still have to open it. Right. Um, so yeah, but we're really excited. So come down, listeners. Uh, keep 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 an eye on it, and you know, we look forward to meeting. We'll we'll be hanging out there all the time. And in the interim, we'll be at Shoppers up the street. So uh, you know, our other bar and grill. And you said you're shooting for summer of 2024. That's the game. For, yeah, that's that that's right now. Yeah, the uh, and and, they, and if you drive by it, they are doing a ton of infrastructure improvements already. Uh, windows are being blasted out. It is giant inside when you take out all the walls. Because again, it's a it's an industrial kind of warehousey looking building. Uh, so it's, it, it's, it's actually kind of shocking to walk. I did just the other day, I walked through it. I was like, whoa, this is so big. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to seeing how that, um, you know, hopefully not only like is a cool you know, investment and development for what we're up to, but for the whole city and hopefully brings out other people thinking about their next development project or idea uh, to, to be a catalyst to do it. Well, that's great. I mean, I'm very excited to see it. I live fairly local, so I'm definitely going to have to check it out once it's open. Um, there's so much more that we could talk about today, but we have come to the end of our time. So I want to thank again Kyle York, the co-founder, CEO, and managing partner at York IE. Uh, we appreciate you coming in today and sharing your insights. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the stories and information you heard on today's podcast, find more by subscribing to Business NH Magazine or visiting businessnhmagazine.com. I'm Matt Mowry. And I'm Christine Kerrigan. BizCast NH is a production of Granite Media Group. Mm-hmm.